Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us James Nolan, Jr. He's Washington Gladden, 1859 professor of sociology at Williams College. His previous books include What They Saw in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, Max Weber, G.K. Chesterton, and Sayyid Khatib. And Reinventing Justice, the American Drug Court Movement. He has a new book on a different topic. This is our subject for today. It's called Atomic Doctors, Conscience and Complicity in the, at the Dawn of the Nuclear Age. Welcome, Professor Nolan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Who was Captain James F. Nolan? Captain James F. Nolan uh, was my grandfather. He was an OBGYN radiologist, and he was recruited in the very early years of the Manhattan Project to serve as the post-surgeon in Los Alamos. So the, the story really kind of begins then when he uh, started his work with, with the secret Manhattan Project in, in Los Alamos, New Mexico. The book follows him. It, it really is a narrative history. Uh, it follows him in his work, his engagements with Oppenheimer and the U.S. military and others, following the bomb across the ocean uh, he was there when the Enola Gay took off. He was there when it landed. He, he goes um, in the aftermath of, of the atomic. And you branch out into a lot of other areas regarding the, the advent of, of the atomic age. It's a powerful story, Jim. You got most of your materials from your grandfather's papers? Yeah, so when my, um, my dad passed away um, about eight and a half years ago, my mom came and visited us here in Williamstown and brought with her a box of materials that um, you know no one except my dad even knew existed. And it contained in it uh, my grandfather's uh, papers and correspondence and photographs and maps and artifacts from his time on the Manhattan Project. So this was, much of it was new to me. I knew he was on the Manhattan Project and I knew that he'd gone into Japan right after the war, but, but um, it, was, it was something he'd never really talked about and, um, and I knew very little about. So that was, in terms of the material for the book, that was the starting point. And it's a very rich, small archive of material, but it then led me to follow his journey, his journey through the nuclear age, the early nuclear age, which was a fascinating journey. And as you pointed out, he had a number of interesting roles, which began um, in Los Alamos. He served as the post-surgeon at the hospital there. He basically built the hospital there. And his main role in the first uh, couple years of, from basically from the spring of 1943 into 1945, was delivering the baby. So he delivered all the children of the 
famous scientists who were on the Manhattan Project, including Robert, Robert, Robert Oppenheimer's daughter and his own daughter. So he had training in both obstetrics and gynecology as well as uh, radiology, and I think that made him a, a good fit and was one of the reasons he was recruited by his classmate, Louis Hempelman. But in addition to that, he, um, he, he helped set up the safety and evacuation procedures for the Trinity test, which was the first bomb exploded in, in human history. And th that episode of, the, of his journey was interesting in that he uh, took a trip to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to confront Leslie Groves about potential fallout from the Trinity test. And Groves was not happy to, um, to, to be confronted by Nolan. And in fact, his response uh, when he read the report put together by the doctors about potential radio, radioactive fallout from the Trinity test was, um, he said to my grandfather, what are you, some kind of Hearst propagandist? <laughs> <laughs> Not wanting to kind of violate the secrecy and security of, of the test. Then, even though my grandfather was allowed to help uh, set up the safety evacuation procedures, he actually left two days before the Trinity test because he was asked to escort the bomb. So he literally carried the uranium-235, the core explosive material from the Hiroshima bomb, uh, for the Hiroshima bomb, from Los Alamos to Tinian Island. The first test was of the plutonium bomb, correct? That's right. So the Trinity test was a plutonium bomb. The Hiroshima uh, bomb was uh, a uranium bomb. And the one that was exploded at Trinity, which was in the Alamogordo uh, bombing range of the New Mexico desert, was the same kind of, same kind of bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. So there were two types. And the one he carried was the uranium-235, and that's, that part of the story is an interesting one. They carried it aboard the USS Indianapolis uh, to Tinian Island. Um, he was there for the final assembly and then um, you know, watched as it you know, um, was put on board the Enola Gay for its fateful flight to Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And then he, 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 he was, a part, part of his journey was he then went into Japan right after the war, and part of a small group that came to be called the Joint Commission to um, look at the, both the kind of physical damage as well as the biological damage, and to assess the extent to which radiation was a factor. Um, so, so, yeah, so he's part of the first group of Americans to walk into Hiroshima in September of 1945. Before he left, when he was in Los Alamos, did you have any records of what he thought of Oppenheimer and the other scientists? working yeah. on the project. Did he idealize them? Did he, did he have doubts about their, their own motives, anything like that? He did talk about the various people. And in a certain sense, he was in an interesting position, he and the other doctors. And so, you know, the title of the book, of course, is Atomic Doctors. So it's really looking at the, the medical doctors who are on this project. And they were in a unique position in that they weren't really part of the scientific community, and nor were they really part of the military. They were kind of somewhere in between. And, um, and so it presented for them particular tensions and kind of ethical difficulties. He, uh, one of the issues, one of the tensions with the scientists is that they were, these were brilliant people, right? They're a number of Nobel Prize winning physicists. And so in his, in his medical work, the, the scientists would sometimes uh, question him, question his decisions and his authority. He, he and the other doctors who were on the project, and th that presented a bit of a quandary. But he, the, you know, the doctors weren't really military, even though they entered the military for the purposes of the Manhattan Project. And so the kind of hierarchy of authority and the, the surveillance and the security that was in place was also a source of uh, of tension uh, for the doctors. So it was a, so it was a unique uh, situation. He he he, he realized. He said that 
Oppenheimer was brilliant. He seemed to be much less fond of Leslie Groves, who was the military head of, of the Manhattan Project. So I already talked about the confrontation he had with Groves, but he also described him as tough, as having, uh, he described him as having rifle barrel vision, meaning all he could think about was the security aspect. And as a consequence of that, my grandfather observed that radiation issues were entirely secondary. They, neither of the scientists nor the military really thought or anticipated what would be the, the effects of radiation from the bombs. Did he chafe under the, under the security, the top secret nature of things, or just sort of silently, I don't like this, but I, I've got to go along? No, they, they didn't like it. They didn't. So, so he, he was there with his wife, my grandmother, and uh, my dad, uh, who was five, you know, around five years old, and, and then my aunt, who was the first child born at the military base in Los Alamos. And um, so he's there, he there with his family, and, and, and the understanding from, you know, that has come down through the family is that they were very keen to get out of the military. So as soon as the war was over and he got back from his time in Japan, he immediately set about getting uh, discharged from the military. He wanted to get back to his work as a doctor. And um, in terms of uh, surveillance, there's a story that my aunt told me. I interviewed her a couple times for the book that my grandmother was going to go to the PX to pick up some food. And she called her friend, Eleanor Hempelman, to see you know, who was sick. You know, is, there, is there anything that she could pick up for her? And then as she's about to leave, um, uh, to go out to, to pick up the food, there are two MPs standing at her door, and, and apparently both she and Eleanor Hempelman were interviewed for over an hour, and evidently they'd used one of the code words for the day, which was peanut butter. <laughs> so, so you know, th- th- this is an example of the kind of hyper-surveillance that went on, and it, and, and it really was extreme, such that you know many of Oppenheimer's telephone calls were listened into and tape-recorded, yeah. and... And, and the scientists and, and the doctors chafed against this kind of oversight and surveillance and security. I'm sure people know Oppenheimer's security clearance was, was actually withdrawn a few years later uh, after, after the war in a famous, famous episode uh, there. Now, the, the Trinity test uh, that, that happened now, the whole project was initially about a race to beat the Nazis to getting the bomb. Not, the, the Nazis had some brilliant scientists, you know, Werner von Braun and others. Uh, now, when you, you go into this uh, in detail, the war in Germany ended, but they didn't stop pursuing the bomb. Was this a big debate at the time? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really important point. And, and it, it, you know, the pressure on um, the scientists to finish the bomb was very intense in the spring of 1945. And and so in the spring of 1945, um, you know, the pace to finish the bomb intensified. And interestingly, it was during this time that the, you know, the reason that they initially participated in this project, many of the physicists, was, was because of the concern that Germany would get it first. And, and the community of physicists was an international community. A number of the physicists in Los Alamos had actually come over to the United States because they had to. They were in Nazi-occupied territories and were trying to escape. And, and they participated in the Manhattan Project. And in fact, the, the Manhattan Project was initiated by the, um, the physicists. Uh, Leo Szilard uh, participated in writing a letter that, that ultimately was signed by Albert Einstein, sent to Roosevelt, that, that started the whole thing. So that was their reason for participating. So in the spring of, 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 of 1945, of course, there was a secret espionage project called ALSOS 
that determined that Germany wasn't even close to having a bomb. And then, of course, Germany surrenders, yet their work continued. And so there, was, there were some objections offered by the scientists at the time. But even more significantly, a number of the scientists look back um, at that period, realize that they were working harder than ever, working, realize that, that their reason for participating had, had disappeared, and yet why did they keep working? Why did, why did they keep going forward? And the number of them reflected on that, people like Robert Wilson, Frank Oppenheimer, who was uh, Robert Oppenheimer's brother. A number of them look back and, and, and are perplexed that they did so, are perplexed. And one of the kind of reasons that they offer was what you know Thomas Hughes refers to as uh, that technological momentum. There was, there was just kind of this large enterprise supported by the military and, and by universities and by industry that was propelling them forward almost as a force outside of themselves. And that's at least one of the reasons that, that's given for why they carried on as they did, even against their own kind of inclinations. Were they anticipating also the Russian threat post-war? Yeah. I mean, I don't that that's a you know very much a debated issue with, among historians and it's something i do address but that certainly was a factor and and there's one fellow who did actually leave um a polish physicist who had come over as part of the the british delegation he had been in a conversation with leslie groves and others in los alamos and groves said you know that one of our reasons for doing this is to suppress the russians and clearly evidence has come out that that was a, a, an important consideration that it wasn't simply um, to end the war with Japan, but that in many ways it was the first strike, if you will, in the emerging Cold War with Russia. What were the fears leading up to the, the test, the first test there at, at Los Alamos? Yeah, there were a number of fears. I mean, among the physicists, you know, that it, it had been speculated that it could actually ignite the atmosphere. Um, there, there were bets about just how powerful it would be among the physicists. But significantly for the doctors, their great fear was was really the issue of fallout. And they had trouble getting both the military and the scientists to listen to their concerns. And so my grandfather, Stafford Warren, who's the head medical officer, Louis Hempelman, who was close friends with um, Oppenheimer and who who's a, a, a medical school classmate of my grandfather's and the one who ultimately kind of brought him on board. The three doctors were very concerned and they had trouble getting even the scientists to listen to them. And finally, they did. They got a couple of scientists, a guy named John McGee and another guy named Joseph, Joseph Hirschfelder, to, to be concerned about fallout. And in fact, they had a pretest to the Trinity test in medical and military parlance, they called them TR1 and TR2. And TR1 was a 100-ton dynamite explosion that they did before the Trinity test, and they spiked it with some um, radioactive material in order to kind of assess what might be the fallout. And based upon that test, McGee and Hirschfelder did some calculations and concluded that it would just be, it would be utterly dangerous, that there would be fallout, and that they shouldn't, in fact, not do the Trinity test. And, and Hempelman later admitted that, you know, had Hirschfelder and McGee been right, they shouldn't have done the Trinity test. Yet, you know, at this point, Truman's in Potsdam, you know, meeting with Churchill and Stalin, and he desperately wanted to know that they had this bomb. And as a consequence, Leslie Groves, the military head, was pushing them very hard to test so much so that he was almost willing to, 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 to explode the bomb in a rainstorm, which everyone, everyone, including the meteorologist who was on the project, a guy named Jack Hubbard, said would be utterly dangerous. That would push you know, the, the radiation to the ground. And, and, um, and yet 
you know, th- there was this great pressure to go forward. So they did. They went forward. They went forward even against the most ideal weather conditions that, that Hubbard said were, were necessary. And they actually had to delay it a little bit because of a rainstorm. <laughs> So there was immense pressure, immense pressure. Yeah, I mean, it must have been very hard for, for the doctors to be in any reliable way scientific, predictive, about the radiation fears when nothing like this had ever happened before. And that's a good point. And, and I mean, they did have knowledge. I mean, and that's the interesting thing. The doctors were in a position that they did have knowledge of, of the effects of radiation, more so than than the other many of the scientists who were on the project because they you know my grandfather had worked using radiation as a form of medical treatment and he he even talks about having gone to the first radium society meeting in 1939 and seen uh, some of the doctors who were there who were had missing fingers because of their in their practice you know using radiation as a form of treatment and he you know he regarded them as heroic you know they were these were pioneers in the field so so they were they were aware they also were aware of the um the the women who in um on the east coast were in these factories painting the the luminous watches you know and they would they would in a practice called tipping they would lick lick their um in order to point the 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 um the, the paintbrushes, they would lick the material and it had some radium in it. And then, you know, these, these women ended up getting cancer in their jaws and dying. So they, they, again, they, they knew about this. And interestingly, when, when they were offering their concerns about, you know, just how much radiation exposure was acceptable, was tolerable, the, the, the scientists are the ones that actually pushed back. And they said, well, how much do you think I could take? They said this specifically to my grandfather. My grandfather had this kind of sardonic, ironic wit. And he, he, re- he would respond to them and say, well, how much do you want? <laughs> you know, that's how he responded back to the, to the scientists. And they actually agreed on levels of exposure that were higher than the known acceptable doses at that time. Yeah. And so, so in, and in many ways, that was pressure put on the doctors by the scientists, thinking that they could handle more than was the acceptable level at the time. Why was Dr. Nolan asked to accompany Little Boy, he was called, across the ocean? Why did he have to be there? Basically, the idea was that, as he understood it, that you would have a, a medical-slash-scientific courier, and then you would have a, mili- a military one. And so the military courier was a guy named Robert Furman, who was one of Groves' top aides. And, and Furman himself had actually been on the ALSOS project. So that was the espionage project in Europe that was meant to determine whether or not the Germans uh, could make a nuclear bomb. In fact, incidentally, it was a, it was a project, um, it was an espionage project that, um, in which they were given permission to assassinate Werner Heisenberg, if they wanted to. They didn't, um, but they did determine that Germany wasn't even close to having a bomb. So anyway, it was Robert Furman and my grandfather. So there was the two couriers who escorted little boy from Los Alamos to Tinian Island. And as my grandfather understood it, you know, they wanted someone who had some knowledge of radiation. So he uh, had a Geiger counter and he was accompanying little boy, testing it. There was no real concern of uh, ultimately of it reaching criticality. It was actually only 60% of the of the final explosive material that was used in the bomb, and so that that that's as he understood. Now there was a there was a recent kind of theory put forth. I'll just mention this, and I don't I don't have a lot of evidence in support of this, but it's an interesting one, and that is he had offered you know he had he had challenged Groves, and Groves was not happy about being challenged about um, 
you know, the, the potential fallout. Um, and so there's one speculation that, that – so here, here is Nolan, who's head of – he's the one that set up the safety and evacuation procedures for the training test, and yet he was asked to leave two days before the bomb. Interesting. And the fellow who carried the, the rest of the bomb over, the, the, the other 40 percent, he did so by plane, whereas the part that my grandfather carried was taken um, by, uh, uh, by, by ship – was a guy named Pierre de Silva. Now, Pierre de Silva was head of security at Los Alamos, and he is the one that participated in the oversight of Oppenheimer, and he was very concerned about Oppenheimer. In fact, at one point, he even wrote to his superiors in Washington and said, this guy is not to be trusted. He's a Soviet spy. He should be taken off the project. <laughs> and that was a problem, his, you know, what, what, what Pierre de Silva was saying. And in a certain sense, he was sent to Tinian to get him out of there. <laughs> And someone, is, someone who read my book actually wondered if that was also the case with Nolan, that because he was challenging the military, Leslie Groves, you know, someone who continued to defend Oppenheimer in spite of all the evidence of his kind of communist entanglements, um, that, that maybe that was a reason. I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of evidence for that, except that I know that was the case for De Silva in part. That was one of the reasons he was sent to Tinian. So there's a possibility that, that that was the case as well. But I really think they just wanted someone who knew about uh, radiation. And, uh, and, and then when he went to Tinian Island, he also then served as the kind of safety medical person there as well on Tinian Island. Why did he end up in Hiroshima? Was that for the same reasons? To, to study the radiation effects? Yes. So, so interestingly, in his own account, um, in the papers that I found, he says that there, there are four of them who gathered together on Tinian Island on August 9th, so the evening of the Nagasaki bomb, and said, we should go into Japan. And then they proposed that to their uh, boss, uh, General Farrell. And then two days later, Groves initiated this effort of getting into Japan. Now, I don't know if that was the impetus but the, the ostensible reason was to get in to assess the damages and in particular to find out if there was residual radiation on the ground. And, uh, and um, Groves in particular was very concerned about that, mainly for PR reasons. Um, there were reports coming out of Japan that there were people dying from ongoing radiation exposure, radiation sickness, as it was sometimes called. And he actually wanted to dispel those rumors and or what he what he he called um, you know propaganda coming out of Japan, and so he wanted experts, people who knew how to measure radiation and so forth, um, the doctors. But he he didn't worry about his own exposure. So Stafford Warren also went into Japan. So the two doctors, they were the two uh, American doctors who went in, and they worked with a, a number of Japanese doctors once they got into Japan. But really, the message from Groves, and, and in fact, you know Thomas Farrell told a group of them right before they were going to go into Japan, he said, you know, your, your mission is to go out and go into Japan and determine that there's no residual radiation. And uh, Donald Collins was part of this group. He was an engineer who, who was an expert in radiation um, measurement instruments like Geiger counters and so forth. And he raises his hand and he says, well, you know, General Farrell, I thought we were going in to find out if there was residual radiation. <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, he anticipated this, this is a predetermined narrative and saw it as problematic. And, you know, again, he's not really a military guy and he was pulled aside and told, you know, don't speak back to a, a superior officer. But so, so that's really what Groves wanted. And, and, and Warren and Nolan were both in the military. And so they, you know, this is their boss, if you will. 
And and so there was pressure for them to downplay um, the effects of radiation. And and even though they tried to, it seems to me, maintain a certain level of kind of intellectual integrity and report what they did in fact find, which that they did in fact find some residual radiation, and they certainly found all sorts of um, uh, uh, negative consequences of the impact of initial radiation on, on the Hibakusha or the Japanese victims. I got the pre- impression that they even downplayed the, the effects on themselves. So, for example, one of the, there are a number of effects of radiation poisoning or radiation sickness, and one of the initial effects is you know, diarrhea. And when they were in Hiroshima, both Warren and Nolan got severe cases, and it was obvious. I mean, that, that they're observing this all around them. They themselves, in, in Warren's report to Groves about what he saw, he mentions it as one of the symptoms. And yet they attributed it to um, Japanese food. <laughs> so, so they themselves kind of downplayed what they experienced even on themselves. And um, yeah, so and, and even my, my grandfather, even in his medical practice, had all sorts of exposure. And even there, I interviewed a doctor who he worked with out in California. And they, they had a kind of habit of downplaying, downplaying how much exposure uh, they received. What was the attitude of the Japanese hosts when they arrived and mingled? No anger? It was a mix. Their their main host was a was a famous kind of surgeon, Tokyo surgeon named Seo Tuzuki, and he basically took them around to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he he was on the one hand cooperative and uh, and helpful. But on the other hand, he could be very critical and acerbic in relating to the American doctors. So, for example, when they were in Tokyo getting ready to, to go into Hiroshima, which is the first city they went into, this Tuzuki himself had studied in the United States. He spoke very good English. He had done studies of the effects of radiation on rabbits and had written it up. It's been published. It's published in, in, in English. And he handed it to one of the American physicists, and he thumbed through it and handed it back to Tuzuki. And then Tuzuki slapped him on the knee and he said, ah, but the Americans, aren't they great? It has been left for them to do the experiment on humans. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then when they were in Hiroshima, um, he, you know, he, he, he was taking them around to the various hospitals and so forth. And one time, at one point, he um, you know, picks up an autopsy brain and he said, first it was rabbits. Now it's humans. And he kind of showed it to the Americans and said that. Yeah. So, 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 but in the main, the, the relationship between the American doctors and the Japanese doctors who were part of the Joint Commission, and the Joint Commission was this you know, combined effort of the doctors from both countries working to assess you know, the kind of biological damages from the bomb. And it was, it, it was in the main very cooperative. And I have, I, I, in the book, I... I cite a number of instances where they developed, you know, very friendly relationships and, and were quite fond of each other. And, yeah. and it was really, it was really kind of a, 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 a nice part of the story was that, that here are these, you know, once en- enemies, once they were working together, uh, really appreciated each other and, and, and developed kind of fondness for one another. Back to the States. What happened at the Omega site? So the Omega site was an auxiliary site, if you will. It wasn't part of the main Los Alamos lab, but it was a place where they did what are called the criticality experiments. And it was basically experiments to determine how much of the active material was necessary in order to achieve a chain reaction that would reach criticality and thus uh, an explosion. 
And, um, and so it was dangerous. And, and there were a couple of physicists who participated in these experiments. It was called at the time tickling the dragon's tail. That's the term that they used because they had to move basically pieces of uranium or plutonium, move them close toward criticality in order to assess how much was necessary. And, and in a couple instances, they had accidents. And um, the two most famous ones are with a fellow named Harry Dofflin and then another fellow named uh, Louis Sloten. And, and in these cases, the pieces got too close to one another, uh, emitted uh, the blue glow of radiation exposure. In both cases, they were able to move the tamper material away from the plutonium core quickly enough that there, there wasn't uh, you know, an explosion, but people were exposed to uh, high levels of radiation. And in both cases, um, both Harry Dofflin and Louis Sloton died um, from, from the radiation exposure. And then uh, also in both cases, there were other people in the room who eventually had uh, long-term um, consequences of, uh, from the accidents. That, and in some cases, their deaths likely were um, attributable to the, the exposure they received at the Omega site. The book is Atomic Doctors, Conscience and Complicity at the Dawn of the Nuclear Age. There's much more that we didn't get to, many other stories uh, in, in the book, uh, actually coming all the way up to the present, including an interesting 40th anniversary that is worth reading. But in any case, uh, Professor Nolan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.